Welcome to Earth Matters, environment and social justice stories from Australia and around the world, produced in the studios of 3CR in Nam, Melbourne, on the unceded land of the Wurundjeri and Bunurong people of the Kulin Nation. Earth Matters is going out to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network. I'm your host, Judith Peppard. Today we'll be speaking with Dr. Kate Umbers from Western Sydney University about the impact of global heating on invertebrates, those tiny creatures that don't have backbones, and in particular, Australia's alpine insects. That's the real value of looking at a species like these guys because they can't fly, they can't move very far, and I know they don't move very far. So this is where we sort of talk about something called an indicator species. They can indicate to us where the areas of conservation concern should be or how many areas we should be defining. That's coming up later in the show. We begin in Australia's north. In May this year, the Northern Territory gave the go-ahead to a huge new fracking project in the Beedaloo Basin. In doing so, the Northern Territory and Australian governments had to seek to ensure that there was no net increase in the life cycle GHG, or greenhouse gas emissions, emitted in Australia from any onshore shale produced in the Northern Territory. That assurance was provided by a CSIRO Jasira report, released in February this year, which indicated that Beetaloo could be developed, without adding to Australia's net emissions. In response, the Nerdalinji Aboriginal Corporation, an alliance of First Nations groups who oppose fracking in the Beetaloo, commissioned an independent analysis by International Science Policy Institute Climate Analytics. Thomas Uli is a climate and energy policy analyst with Climate Analytics and one of the authors of the report, Emissions Impossible. Unpacking CSIRO, Jasira, Beetaloo, and Middle Arm Fossil Gas Emissions Estimates. I caught up with Thomas Uli a couple of weeks ago, and I began by asking about their investigation. Like, where does one start something like that? It starts by a forensic reading of the reports and trying to see everything that we can get about the assumptions that they're using, uh, the assumptions that they're taking. So a critical component of those assumptions is what we call the methane loss rates. Basically, when you extract gas and process it, at every stage of the process, you have uh, methane, which is a greenhouse gas that leaks into the atmosphere. And uh, methane is a really potent greenhouse gas. So the assumptions that you make regarding uh, the leakage rate of methane will significantly uh, impact the emissions. And so a major step of our approach was to try to find uh, which level of methane loss rates uh, the CSIRO G0 was, was using. And we found that it was very underestimated by at least 56%, which then impacts all the emissions analysis. So from this, following this red thread, we managed to find that the upstream emissions intensity was underestimated by a significant margin, by 44 to 110%. I mean, I find this incredible. This is not like a small slippage in data analysis here is huge. Exactly. So in our report, we also compare it with other research published about uh, shale gas in the US, in Asia, in the European Union. And we find that 
it is underestimated compared to those other studies. And this is not the only thing that was underestimated. So methane loss are mostly prevalent at what we call the upstream stage, which is uh, the extraction and the processing of the gas. But we also find significant underestimation in the energy production emissions, which are the greenhouse gas releases that are produced when you turn the gas into LNG. And those will happen at the middle arm precinct. So those were underestimated by 57 to 89%. And once again, it is well below other findings from all around the world. So you're looking at international evidence and it really just doesn't stand up. Exactly. So fracking is pretty new in Australia. There is not a lot of research in Australia about fracking. So we have to compare it with what's done at the international level. You talked about the methane. What other findings did did you have as a result of your analysis? So yes, the methane loss rate uh, has consequences all across the board. Another big finding is the underestimation of LNG production emissions, uh, which are really low, underestimated by 57 to 89%. You find that in countries or areas with a cold climate, emissions from LNG processing, so the process of turning gas into LNG, are lower because the process is more efficient when it's cold. Less polluting LNG plants is located in Norway, in the northernmost city in the world, uh, called Harmerfest where temperatures are really low, which makes the process uh, more energy efficient and therefore less emissive. But still, the CSIO G0 finds that producing LNG in Darwin, which is in a hot climate, lower than the LNG producing production emissions in this city in Norway. That gives you uh, an example of the absurdity of those results. We find that the CSIO G0 has underestimated the cumulative total emissions over 25 years, including those occurring overseas, by close to 1.5 times Australia's 2021 emissions. We also found that Tamborant's plan to build an LNG plant in middle arm will translate to adding 6 to 8 million new cars to Australia's roads. So on one hand, the CSO G0 did an estimate of the emissions, which we found out was underestimated, but they also assessed to what extent we could offset those emissions. And we found that their estimation of the offset potential in Australia was overinflated. We found that they use liberal assumptions for all the offsetting methods that can be used. They also overinflate the extent to which you can offset those emissions. They also assume that some of the offset could be sourced uh, internationally, for example, with uh, reforestation projects abroad, and this is currently not permitted in the current regulation. At the moment, the current regulations do not uh, allow for the use of international offsets. And it's also very problematic because uh, multiple papers are showing that offsets and Australian carbon credit units do not represent actual uh, emission sequestration. We don't have very good results from the Australian offset program. Yes. Like- uh, that is also a problem with the framing of the reports is that on one hand, you push for a fossil fuel development that will emit significant amount of greenhouse emission. But then on the other hand, you say, it's fine, I'm offsetting everything. But of course, only the domestic emissions have to be offset when most of the emissions from the gas extracted from the Bitalu will be burned overseas. And those are not factored in Australia's emissions. So we find that Tamborwan Resources plan to develop a 6.6 million tons per annum LNG plants at the Australian taxpayer-funded middle-arm gas precinct 
will generate emissions equivalent to adding six to eight million new cars to Australia's roads. And we found that uh, Tamboran Resources announced plan to expand the capacity of the plants to 20 million tons per annum. So Tamboran's planning to increase their project to make it bigger. Is that right? Yes. The initial plan is to develop a 6.6 million ton per annum LNG plant at Middle Arm, which is already really big, and then to increase its capacity to 20 million tons per annum. So Tamboran Resources plans to expand the capacity of the plant to 20 million tons of LNG per year. So to give you a, a comparison, at the moment, Australia is producing 80 million tons of LNG per year that is exported mainly to East Asia. Thomas Hooley, a climate and energy policy analyst with Climate Analytics and one of the authors of Emissions Impossible, unpacking CSIR Road Jazeera, Beetaloo and Middle Arm fossil gas emissions estimates. CSIR Road Jazeera have stood by their report and estimates, but with regard to transparency, an important piece of information that their February report relied on, the amount of greenhouse gases the Beetaloo could produce and had to offset, was not publicly available until September this year, when it was uploaded onto the CSIRO website. This added to concern about conflict of interest relating to the fact that Jasira receives 31% of its funding from the gas industry. Here's Thomas Uli again. And that has an incentive to publish research like this that shows that emissions from fracking in the Bitaloo would be relatively low and that there is potential to make uh, those emissions net zero. It seems like from your analysis, every single area, the lowest possible emission data was chosen. Would that be a fair comment? I wouldn't say for everything, but yes, when we were going through the CSIO G0 report, the more we were digging, the more we were finding issues with the numbers. And once again, all across the boards from methane loss rates to upstream emissions, which are the emissions from the fracking and the extractions of the gas, uh, to LNG production emissions all across the board. What kind of response have you had to your report? You've had both the report itself and then you've had an article in the conversation. I'm wondering if you've heard anything back about your findings. Uh, we've had good reactions so far. People are interested uh, in these reports. We also hope that it will help local communities and people that will be directly affected by, by fracking in the Bitalu. Were you surprised by what you found? We were really surprised. The more we were digging, the more we were finding issues uh, with the data and with the numbers all across the board. And this is especially surprising in a time when we know that at the global level, we need to reduce our gas consumption and our gas production. And yet you still have findings like this and that are showing that it is possible to extract more gas and burn more gas and produce more energy when we have a climate emergency. A report that, that, like the one you've just looked at gives the go-ahead for more production of fossil fuels rather than the opposite. Exactly. Indirectly, this kind of report is a green light for the fracking in, in Australia. And it suits the interest of the fossil gas industry that is looking to frack the Northern Territory. It also aligns with the motives of the Northern Territory government because a lot of efforts have been put to enable the fracking of the Bitaloo. 
this is a rich area for biodiversity and it's set to be destroyed. Yes, fracking has a dramatic impact on, on biodiversity, on local communities, the water. So it is a disaster all across the world, especially in the pristine area like the, the Bitalu Basin. The CSIRO G0 is assuming that some of the emissions from the fracking of the Bitalu and the processing of the gas at Middle Arm will be captured and stored underground with once again liberal assumptions regarding the extent to which those CO2 emissions can be captured. Our findings show that cumulatively over the 25 years life of the project and including exported emissions, uh, Tamboran resources plan to frag the Bitalu and produce LNG will generate emissions between 0.8 to 3.2 gigatons of CO2. That will be 8 to 51% of Australia's cumulative emissions from 2024 to 2050. This jeopardizes Australia's uh, climate targets. So this shows that the fracking of the Bitalu and the production of more LNG in Darwin will jeopardize Australia's climate targets and net zero targets. And uh, more theoretically, it is not possible to reduce emissions and producing more fossil fuel and more gas and exporting more LNG. Thomas Suli, a climate and energy policy analyst with Climate Analytics and one of the authors of Emissions Impossible, unpacking CSIRO, Jazeera's Beetaloo and Middle Arm fossil gas emissions estimates. You're on Earth Matters, produced on Wurundjeri and Bunurong Country, at 3CR in Nam, Melbourne, and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network. We now move from the Beetaloo Basin to the Australian Alps to look at how global heating affects the tiniest of creatures, the invertebrates, and in particular, the insects that live in Australia's alpine regions. Dr. Kate Umbers is a senior lecturer in zoology at Western Sydney University and co-author of Trapped, Australia's Extraordinary Alpine Insects Are Being Marooned on Mountaintops As the World Warms. She clarified for me that not all invertebrates are insects, but a good proportion are, and I was interested in finding out why invertebrates are so important because they do everything, you know, that's really the answer. They do almost everything. The common ones that we cite are, of course, pollination. So they're fertilizing plants and that's fertilizing in the sexual sense, not in the putting nutrient into the soil. They kind of do that too, because they're composting, breaking down all the decaying material, making it available for plants in the soil, controlling the balance of different organisms. So the predatory invertebrates, are controlling the herbivore invertebrates so they don't get out of control. And we have, of course, all these really sophisticated, ancient kind of symbioses whereby you have multiple species involved. For example, a wasp that infects a caterpillar that, you know, that infects something else. And you have these really complicated reproductive and predatory relationships that, you know, have evolved over the last 400 million years. It's partly because when you're talking about invertebrates, you're talking about 95% of animals. Vertebrates are one small part of one group of animals. There's 36 major groups of animals. All of them are, are invertebrates. But in one of those, we have a subgroup that are the vertebrates. When you say invertebrates, what do you mean? As a biologist, you mean all animals, except for the weird ones that have the backbones. Jellyfishes, 
all the major groups of worms, the flatworms, the roundworms, the segmented worms, all of the arthropods, which means the flies, the insects, the crustaceans, the spiders and all their relatives, all of the mollusks, all the snails and squid and slugs and all those wonderful creatures. You've said that invertebrates are an essential part of ecosystems. And as you point out in your paper, they're vulnerable to rising global temperatures. What are those vulnerabilities? One of the key characteristics for invertebrates, some invertebrates, is the entire species occupies a very small area of land. They're vulnerable to what we would call localized stochastic events, meaning things that happen in an area by chance and it impacts the entire species all at once. You know, the classic example would be the, the Black Summer bushfires, where we had a large-scale fire event that was able to impact the entire species range for lots and lots and lots of invertebrates. From studies coming out of Germany and America and the UK, we can see a very clear decline for most invertebrates that have been studied for a long period of time. We don't have those kinds of data in Australia, and we have no reason to suspect that Australian invertebrates are different to any of the invertebrates that we see around the world, because these large-scale impacts like climate change, pesticide-use land change, uh, ubiquitous threats that can be extremely devastating for a lot of species. I don't mean that they're threats that are coming from other places to Australia. I mean that they're threats that affect ecosystems across the entire world. We are doing it to Australia, not other places in the world doing it to Australia. Um, and of course, we're one of the biggest contributors to climate change. So we have a lot to answer for. I just want to come to the invertebrates of the Australian Alps or insects, as they're often called. You've described them in your paper as beautiful and diverse. And the photographs in the article absolutely show their beauty found nowhere else in the world. If they're lost to Australia, they're lost to the whole world. You talk about like a rivet in an airplane. Can you just say a bit more about that? Anne and Paul Ehrlich, famous US biologists, suggested this. The idea is that you're flying across the Pacific, say from Sydney to LA or something, and you've got a window seat and you look out the, you know, look out the window and a little pop rivet comes out of the wing of the plane and you go, yeah, right, okay, that's not great. And then a little while later, you see another one. And of course, the thought is how many can we lose before we go down into the drink? And I think it was an incredibly clever analogy to help people understand that these little individual parts are holding us together and stopping us from crashing. And we have no idea how many we can lose. We just know that at some point we will lose one too many and that will have catastrophic impacts on our ability to stay alive. You often will hear people say, oh, you know, what's just one little moth or just what's, you know, one little insect, one little invertebrate. But as that analogy shows, even losing one, you lose a whole lot of connections. People say, what's the big deal with losing one species? And I would say that's the correct question with the wrong attitude. <laughs> what we need to say is, what's the big deal with losing one species? We need to genuinely ask that question rather than sarcastically ask that question. How are the alpine invertebrates here in Australia affected by the warming climate? As you say, not enough research is available, but from what is, what are we seeing? What we do know is that some species seem to require a thick blanket of snow in order to complete their life cycle. 
which is hardly surprising. They have had these layers of snow available to them for thousands of years. So the skyhoppers, we know that that's what they need. The reason that they need it is not because they have to stay dormant for the entire winter. It is possible that they might be able to get through their life cycle without any winter. They might be able to just have le- have eggs, the eggs develop, and they become adults again. The problem is what the snow is doing is stopping the eggs from freezing. The snow is incubating the soil layer at around zero degrees, which protects the eggs from those freezing winds where we get minus 20, minus 30 degrees around Charlotte Pass at the coldest. So that's the function of the snow. That's the important thing that the snow is doing for those creatures. There's a lot of creatures that that depend on that, what's called the subnivium. So the creation of that little habitat during winter, the space between the bottom of the snow layer and the soil. So little mammals will be hunting in that, that space and create little tunnels in there. There's some insects that can stay alive all winter as adults because they have antifreeze in their blood. So they're able to prevent themselves from freezing super cool and um, and hang on under there, but they can't hang on if they're above the snow at minus 20 degrees or something like that. It's creating a stable, relatively warm habitat for organisms to complete their life cycle or stay alive. Kate Umbers from Western Sydney University. I asked Kate about the example of pollinating insects that collect nectar, which may hatch before the plants flower, creating issues for both the insects and the plants. The field of study is called phenology, the timing of you know, nature, I guess, of, of when things happen in natural systems is, is being out of sync. Yeah, so we get the insects, you know, maybe emerging too late or too early or the flowers happening too late or too early. And that's not as catastrophic if you're sort of a generalist where you can be pollinated by kind of anyone and you're just a flower that everyone's pretty interested in. Where these things become, you know, actual extinction risk is where you get these really strong species connections where... You know, orchids are probably a classic example of a really tight relationship where only one, you know, species will only pollinate one or just a few orchid species. When we see those, the breakdown of those relationships because of phenological shifts, we have less confidence that we understand how close ecosystem collapse is for these different areas. Judith, we just we just haven't had enough eyes on the ground. That's so clear. We don't have enough research, and this doesn't help us to put in, you know, prevention mechanisms. Tell me about skyhoppers. Early February, most of them are adults by then. They have their big mating event. They they lay eggs, they die. None of them survive to the next season. Um, all of them, you know, the whole species is eggs over winter. Whether or not they spend one winter under the snow or many winters under the snow, we don't know. It might be that they spend two or three years under the snow before they finally pop out in a spring. It's very hard to track that. (laughs) Tiny little creatures, and you're talking about the eggs. Tell me about the colour change. So they change from very, very close to black colour when they're um, less than 10 degrees, the males. And when their body temperature heats up to around 25 degrees, they turn this turquoise colour. And it happens within their cells. There's these small little granules that move around in their cells depending on what temperature they are. When they're warm, the granules create a layer at the very top of the cell right next to the skin, which causes the light to reflect in a turquoise, in the turquoise region of the spectrum. And people used to think that the number of species was five. 
and now mm -hmm. people think that the number of species is 15. How did that come about? Spending some time in the New South Wales Alps, working with them there, driving down to Victoria, having a look at them there. They don't really look the same, actually. Place and thinking, all right, there's definitely more than five species here. And it makes sense because how would they be interbreeding between the Kosciuszko Plateau and, you know, for example, Mount Hotham or Bulo, which is, you know, you have to go through the massive Murray Valley to get across to share genes. So it seems very unlikely that they would be able to do that. And sure enough, when you have a look at the genetics, it's the, the genus of skyhoppers is much more fragmented than, than the previous records show. But that's just because people had never looked. We hadn't seen them as important enough to put a lot of funding. I mean, we, we have to look at how things get funded as well. And I think that has an impact too. Yeah. The important thing about it is that they can tell us where all the important genetic breaks are across the Alps. So they can tell us, because they're so widely spread out, where we can see individual patches and pockets of them, we can go, right, okay, this, this whole area seems to be not genetically connected to this whole area and this area. And these, these areas are all genetically separated. And probably if they're separated for the grasshoppers, they're also separated for all of these other species that can't easily share genes. That's the, that's the real value of looking at a species like these guys because they can't fly they can't move very far and i know they don't move very far so this is where we sort of talk about something called an indicator species they can indicate to us where the areas of conservation concern should be or how many areas we should be defining as separate units of conservation interest in the alps you know in your paper you describe biodiversity on a knife edge in Australia, or at least in the Alpine region. I mean, that's the focus of the paper. It's pretty hard to disagree with. I could probably say something stronger. <laughs> you know, it seems like a pretty conservative thing to say, really. You know, the majority of our species are not even described. We have no geographic information for half of our invertebrate species that have been described. We can't say with any certainty that, you know, the majority of our invertebrate species are secure and we continue with unchecked climate change land clearing people endlessly putting pesticides into the environment i mean i think it's pretty clear that our biodiversity is on a knife's edge and the alps are the extreme version of that because no matter what you do no matter how well they're protected in a national park you can't exclude climate change from a national park then they are just sitting there Dr. Kate Umbers from Western Sydney University. We're coming to the end of Earth Matters, and big thank you to our two wonderful guests today. Thomas Uli, a climate and energy policy analyst with Climate Analytics and one of the authors of Emissions Impossible. And we'll put a link to that report on the Earth Matters website. And thank you to Kate Umbers, one of the co-authors of the article, Trapped. Australia's extraordinary alpine insects are being marooned on mountaintops as the world warms. And we'll put a link to the article about alpine insects on our website and also a link to Invertebrates Australia if you've been inspired to find out more about these amazing creatures. Earth Matters thanks the Community Radio Network for their work in broadcasting today's show and bringing it to you and the Community Broadcasting Foundation for their generous financial support. Earth Matters is produced at 3CR Community Radio in Nam, Melbourne, and we can be contacted on earthmatters 
3cr at gmail.com. And do tune in again next week for more environment and social justice stories.